Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hello everybody and welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Bleasdale. I am a critic, a writer and the host of Writers on Film. Today I have a special guest. I'm talking to Kim Newman who has written extensively about film for for decades. He is the author of a whole bunch of books. You might know his landmark study on horror movies, nightmare movies, as it was called, as well as a uh, film critic and as well as a writer about film. He is also a successful novelist with the Anno Dracula series of books, his brilliant alternative history, a twist on Dracula and kind of anybody in late 19th early 20th century literature going all the way through to to the to the 1970s and la dolce vita in italy and the whole thing it's absolutely great really really good series of books really enjoy them he's got a new novel out at the moment called something more than night which features raymond chandler and boris karlov solving crimes in los angeles a noirish behind the scenes look at hollywood it's uh it's it's a really great feat of the imagination brilliantly written if you enjoy the episode please remember to like it and to share with all your friends and with everybody who who you know or maybe even uh, just publish it on social media because let's face it they're mostly going to be strangers reading it there anyway you can follow me on twitter at dr john d-r-j-o-n-t-y but before you do any of that please enjoy the conversation 
really sure I can remember the end of things. <laughs> once, once the book's done, it quite often fades. And sometimes it's like years later, I'll have to, you know, reread it to proof a new edition or something. And I'm, I'm capable of being surprised by my own work, which is nice. That must give you the feeling of being like a reader, like a proper. Have you ever sort of reread something and and thought, "Wow, those twists are great," and that that writing's stunning? Oh, and... I not quite. I do laugh at my own jokes, uh, <laughs> I, which I know you're not supposed to, but I, I do chuckle. And, and usually, what you do is you just say, "Oh God, I've used the word facade three times on the page." That kind of stuff. I probably worry a bit too much about that, and now. Because <laughs> now it's so easy to word search in documents. Yeah, I think occasionally I, I fall over backwards not to use a slightly unusual word twice in like a 700-page manuscript, which <laughs> literally nobody in the world is going to care about except... I don't know. I don't know. I certainly have, a, I certainly have those uh, moments where I, I go, oh, he said Fenangle again. <laughs> you know, yeah, uh... yeah. Wow. Oh, well, uh, so so it is worth that extra pass. Just for me, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just to, to make sure of that. And with this one, because I'm trying to write in somebody else's voice, I had to put all Raymond Chandler's books in a big document and go through to check his vocabulary. And even then, that's slightly uh, dodgy because, of course, most of his books are written uh, from the in the authorial viewpoint of Philip Marlowe, who isn't Raymond Chandler. <laughs> but but it it gives you a sense of the the words he used. I was wondering about what you what you feel about Raymond Chandler because he's he's a writer who who I I admire and I've admired for for a while. But I always think of that meeting he had and the collaboration he had with Billy Wilder and I tend to side with Wilder. Yeah, I do accept it uh, maybe as somebody who's worked with people in the industry. I think Wilder also comes across as insufferable in that. I, mm. I, I, neither of them come out well from <laughs> that is it. Except of course the work they did was outstanding. So yeah um uh, there are uh, yeah and, and uh, yeah, um, Chandler only only lasted like a week and a half with Hitchcock. Yeah, whereas Wilder stuck with it. There are various other writer in Hollywood stories about it. But of course, the Chandler who wrote the scripts and the Chandler who wrote the novels had very different work ethics. There's, I think he had this thing a lot of novelists have when they turn to cinema, and I and I'm not immune to this of realizing that a novel is 100,000 words and a script is 15,000 words. It's a lot less work. But the meetings that go along with it are just excruciating. That's why it takes as long to write a script as it does to write a novel. The meetings. And Chandler had little patience with the meetings. I think the meetings are the things you sort of sit yeah, <laughs> grudgingly put up with at the beginning of the process that do um, the novelty wears very thin quite early on. And where was the idea of pairing him with uh, Boris Karloff? When was that sort of, uh, when did that come to you? It shows how long this book's been in the back of my mind. Their centenaries fell within a couple of months of each other. So in 1988, that would have been... Oh, my God. So you've been percolating for that long. Yeah, that's right. And I knew 
it's it's always been one of those things. One of the reasons it's taken me so long to get round to actually writing the book is more and more research kept being done, so the pile of books just got higher and higher. And obviously, is once you realise they're the same age, and then it's just the fact that Chandler went to Dulwich College and. Boris Karloff, William Pratt, lived in Dulwich at mm. about the same time. And then, of course, working out that, oh, and they would have lived in Hollywood at about the same time. And they both had a complicated relationship with the idea of being British, um, in that both of them sort of were and sort of weren't. Chandler was um, was born in Chicago and was Irish American, but but very um, uh, uh, probably indoctrinated is what we would now say by his time in particularly in Dulles College, but in Britain in general. And um, Boris Karloff was Anglo-Indian, so. Um, British, but uh, as they said at the time, coloured. And therefore, he adopted this persona of being a foreigner everywhere, of being at once the perfect Englishman. But also, you know, this name Boris Karloff, which is like a, it's sort of astonishingly fake foreign name that no one ever seems to call him on. It, I, I don't think he ever actually adopted it legally either. Uh, it's a name he just pulled out of his hat because it sounds like a foreigner. It's a, it kind of sounds Russian or Eastern European or something. But, there, but it's not, a, yeah, a real name, I think. Um, and then they both had, you know, they both exemplified genres I was particularly in love with the, the film noir, hard-boiled, private eye mystery, and the classic universal monster movie horror film. Uh, and I'd been wanting to write something in that, you know, vein for a long time. And then it just kept floating around in the back of my head as, as it is for years, to the extent that I've, I think it's been taken down now, but the synopsis or the blurb that was on Amazon was based on like the first notes I wrote some decades ago um, and resembles the finished product almost not at all. When I started out, I think I must have been really influenced by David Lynch because it was going to be one of those, it, it, the, the, the murder was going to be an actress, um, whereas now it's a detective. Uh, and I realize what it is, we've have in the interim, there have been too many, uh, particularly TV series about middle-aged detectives obsessing over dead young women. Um, and I figured we didn't need another one of those. The Black Dahlia and the... That's right. But that was my first sort of pass at the idea. And yeah, the, the, the Black Dahlia, uh, is called that because Raymond Chandler wrote a script called The Blue Dahlia. That's why her name is mispronounced, because it's mispronounced in the film. And I knew about the, the screenplay, but I, I knew about the film, but I didn't know that that was the reason that they, they called the real-life murder. Yeah, because it was a couple of months later. And the mispronunciation that's in the film carried over to the real... And obviously, that, in in as it were, that version of the story that I didn't write was going to be tied up with that. I think probably the fact that there were two really good books, good novels uh, about the Black Dahlia, True Confessions and the Black Dahlia, also dissuaded me from going anywhere near that. <laughs> I've, 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 uh, yeah, I've cut off enough 
<laughs> with this one. You know, it's like there's enough stuff to trip over without that. Yeah. And it also gives you a great opportunity to go into Hollywood uh, in that era as well, you know, as well as the noir and the horror. There's the 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 sort of behind the scenes aspect. Yeah, I love doing that. I, I, I realized early on, that apart from some of the, the, the key works that my main characters were involved in, I wanted to make up a, a movie studio. And, and once you, I do that, it just, I thought, well, yeah, I could almost sit down and just write a book about this studio and all their, the Westerns they've made and the musicals and the, the terrible comedies and all this kind of stuff. And so I had reams of notes on that. Yeah, I know that uh, Quentin Tarantino's writing the films of Rick Dalton about his Once Upon a Time in America character. And I'm really tempted to write the Pyramid Studios biography at some point. You should write a non-fiction book about the Pyramid Studios in which you go into it as if it's as if it all exists. Yeah, no, I'd love to do that. Yeah, I'd love to write. Yeah, uh, I mean, I mean, I think I ended up cutting bits of it because it's, it can get really indulgent and there was also a question of how how much knowledge my viewpoint characters would have had but but yeah no I love doing all that uh, say it with say it with tubers that's why you know I'm <laughs> tempted almost to like you know <laughs> to script it you know I I have once for a charity thing I wrote script which was like a 1930s British quota quickie, you know, like a film that would be impossible to make now, but would have worked really well then. So that sort of thing does appeal to me. Uh, who knows? I might find time. Yeah, I love the uh, the the Marx Brothers sort of. Um, they yeah. the Spark Brothers. The Spark Brothers, yeah, yeah, which is a bit on the nose. And and I, of course, I wrote it before Edgar Wright made that documentary about the band Sparks, but. Go on YouTube and look at some clips of the Ritz brothers, you know, who were a sort of knockoff of the Marx brothers at the time, and whose films have not worn well. Yeah. I think they were probably pretty excruciating at the time. They made a version of The Three Musketeers and an old dark house movie called The Gorilla. But their style of comedy is so obnoxious that it's almost interesting. Yeah. <laughs> in, in what way is it obnoxious? Is it just... Well, it's just... I mean, it's sort of like the verbal equivalent of The Three Stooges. It's just insult humour. Mm. It's kind of like feeble as well. It's, it's, it's bad jokes delivered really fast. It's bad jokes shouted at you in the hope that it'll bludgeon you into laughing. It is that sort of, uh, yeah, anything for effect approach, which the Marx Brothers, to their credit, didn't do, although mm. they were legendarily undisciplined and crazy their best movies are rather elegantly put together <laughs> yeah yeah and they always have a, a, a harp solo in the middle to calm you down between <laughs> the uproarious comedy the ritz brothers just sound like a, an old-fashioned version of the scary movie franchise just lots of bad bad jokes energetically fired at you. Speaking of scary movies, I think the first book I've read of yours was a long time ago, and it was uh, your Nightmare Movies book. That's a, a, an amazing encyclopedic sort of look at survey at the at the panorama of, of horror movies. And I'm quite interested in, in that definition that you give it of Nightmare Movies, where you sort of try to shift the genre definition a little bit. Yeah, it's partly because horror-like comedy is a genre of 
effect rather than structure, isn't it? It's designed to frighten you or disturb you. And there, are, there is an obvious yeah, central tradition of horror, I mean, which you could argue is, I don't know, Frankenstein um, or The Exorcist, uh, although, yeah, everybody who made The Exorcist bent over backwards to say it wasn't a horror movie. The Lying Toads, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> Halloween, yeah, films that look like horror movies, you know, uh, they have monsters in, you know, and actually that sort of the, the gothic look of 1930s universal horror films or the color version that you get in hammer film is so influential yeah but you can make horror films that that look different or work around the the frames and there is this sort of thing i mean and and you can also use the look of horror films to tell different types of stories uh, if you look at um the sweet smell of success or network they are lit like horror films they're paced like horror films although they are social satire i think the best example that and i do use it in the book is if you compare michael mann's manhunter and jonathan demi's silence of the lambs which are based essentially on the same material they have a lot of scenes that are the same manhunter is set in a high-tech thriller world where Hannibal Lecter is kept in a, uh, yeah, a, a well-lit cell. <laughs> yeah. Whereas in The Silence of the Lambs, he's basically kept in the dungeons of Castle Dracula. Is there somewhere you would not put a mental patient you know, in, in the, the, yeah, the, the world of, of Silence of the Lambs? It's a gothic horror world. And Anthony Lecter, uh, uh, Anthony Hopkins, the Hannibal Lecter, uses mannerisms from Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff, whereas Brian Cox doesn't. Yeah. Uh, and so it's, it's, you know, horror films, sometimes it's an overcoat you can put on as well as a, a, yeah, a commercial genre that there's a, an impetus to make. I was thinking, I mean, that, that's so true of Silence of the Lambs as well, because, I mean, he even has Clary Starling sort of go into the darkness with that wonderful yeah. shot where she goes into the tunnel and you see the, yeah. the diminishing spot of light. It's so good. Yeah, but also the, the hands coming out from the other cells, which is from uh, a, a Val Luton film called Bedlam that Robert Wise directed. Yeah, wow. it's like the the... the the whole look of it is gothic horror. And it is, and I think that that's why, uh, and after Silence to Lamb 7 did something very similar, um, and to, to take it all down to the, the current day, so does The Batman. These aren't strictly horror films, but they look like horror films. If you took just frame grabs and, uh, and you know, threw them up alongside frame grabs from... Uh, a whole bunch of Dracula movies. They would seem to mingle together. They, yeah, you can see the the similarities. You can see the look is is always there. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Batman Begins, the Christopher Nolan, the the scene at the docks is played, uh, and and the bat, the Christian Bale Batman is himself like the monster, basically just sort of yeah. the vampire. Yeah. And of course, yeah, wearing a cape. I mean, it's uh... yeah. <laughs> and and I, I think that's probably down to Bob Kane and Bill Finger in the first place, isn't it? I, I, I think the high, although again, it's a really complicated story about the, the creation of Batman. It's, it's that Bob Kane seemed to want to do a, a, just a knockoff of Superman. And it was Bill Finger, the artist, who said, no, make him dark. <laughs> yeah. And so that's why the, the, 
very early Batman is very influenced by uh, universal horror. There's, there was even a uh, one, of, one of the villains who hasn't appeared in a live action uh, movie so far is Clayface, who was originally a sort of Boris Karloff character. He was a, a horror film actor who was deformed uh, be, because of an accident with makeup and became a Gotham City bad guy. They should probably do him next because he's actually quite a good character. Just uh, anything to avoid another Joker film would be. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's my. I don't have any problem with comic book movies per se but but it seems like we're watching the same one several times yeah no i i very much agree with that i'm i'm not as impatient with comic books films as some of my fellow critics are i grew up reading those comics i have a deep and abiding interest in 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 these stories even the 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 characters nobody cares about, I do. But yeah, I don't think we need another uh, another rerun of the same four or five key moments. It's, it's like, I, I was really glad that Batman didn't go back to Crime Alley and have another shooting. But it, it's, but it is like, yeah, I'd like to see a space story now or a good Mr. Freeze story. <laughs> yes, yes. Run, run through very... <laughs> very samey material following on from the sort of horror uh, the the idea of sort of rethinking thinking differently a little bit about horror i find that especially with american horror movies there seems to be two sort of strands whereas there's this sort of action movie horror which is very much based on sort of a series of elaborate kills or set pieces but they're very much action movies so for instance the new texas chainsaw massacre felt to me like i was just watching you know, it was dressed up in horror clothes, but it was really an action movie. And um, and then there's the sort of Ari Aster and the hereditary and the... Uh, well, I mean, it goes way beyond, actually, a lot of English films where there's a kind of um, uh, pushing the horror movie into social directions and into different directions, which uh, which aren't, aren't as much to do with that sort of action aesthetic. What, what does that... Does that stand up i'm 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 coming to the to the the king to for a judgment yeah. i i'm slightly impatient with the notion that horror films having sort of social content or uh, yeah, <laughs> qualities is anything new frankly it's 100 years since Nosferatu, and that does that i i think that yeah most of the really great horror films address uh, deep and powerful and potent themes, even in, in that kind of, you know, the, the yawning existential chasm of something like the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is kind of about the meaninglessness of horror. Then you're right, there's also the, the, the production line horror, meat grinder horror. And that's not, it's not simply the fact that there are these yeah, body count movies, they call them. There, there have been other production lines over, over the years, yeah, uh, 1940s B horror movies or uh, slasher sequels in the 80s, or even that, that run of kind of PG-rated teen-themed ghost stories that we had a couple of years back where a formula works, and so dozens of other people do it, zombie movies or found footage movies. But it may also be that, I mean, and this is what I was fascinated by in nightmare movies, that sometimes when a subgenre suddenly catches on and 
within a couple of years, a hundred very similar films are made. There's got to be something interesting there. It can't just be, you know, Rosemary's Baby or The Exorcist or The Blair Witch Project or Jaws, big hits. So let's make a film that's a bit like that. Yeah, I think you can get away with that for three or four movies, but a hundred movies you can't. I mean, there's got to be something going on, something that's deeply felt or meaningful, or it's a story that people want to hear again and again. Well, I, I mean, one of the, the those subgenres that came out around about the time that I read your book, actually, was... Uh, was the torture porn series, which seems to have come to a bit of an end now. I don't... I don't... Yeah, I've, I've seen one or two lately that are sort of... The things that... It, it is that thing, you watch something. I mean, I mean, I felt a bit like that about the new Texas Chainsaw. I thought, you know, that's such a 2005 movie, isn't it? And it's like, we've gone... And I saw... Yeah, I mean, a, a little film that's, that's uh, just coming out called Fresh, which is which looks very contemporary but there's a long central act with which is a girl chained up in the cellar mm. and you think, oh god yeah and we yeah we got fed up with those films and i think maybe it's it's a case that when you're a critic especially if you specialize in in this area there is a sort of compulsion to watch if not all then most of these movies and i do remember the, the thing of you around 2007, when torture porn was a big thing, you'd like go to Fright Fest or a horror festival and you'd have just a really miserable time because people <laughs> one after another chained up in the basement movies. Yeah, and there was a, they were drab, crude, depressing, you know, often really mean-spirited. And it just was not a fun time, you know. <clears throat> And I'm not arguing that all horror should be amusing on, on that. But I, I think sometimes, yeah, you have to go really dark. I think, but it's like, like comedy. There is cheap horror as well as cheap jokes, isn't there? Cheap laughs. You know, you can always get a laugh with some things, and you can always get a shudder with some things. That's not the same as saying we necessarily need to see it again. And there, there are certainly some tropes that. Um, I'm happy to see fall out of favour. I did see a couple of sort of good torture porn films, but as on a whole, that it's that notion of being mean-spirited that I think is essential. Yeah. It's more than tra eye trauma or anything else. But apropos your point about some social satires being shot like horror movies, have you seen the, the recent French film uh, Bloody Oranges? Uh, no, I haven't. Right, well, that's... Well, I won't spoil anything, but um, it isn't a horror movie, but by God, it has a scene in it, which is pretty horrific. I'll leave that there. Put it on my to-be-watched to list, which currently stands at, uh, yeah, at longer than a la recherche de Tom Perdue. But, <laughs> Going back, sorry, to the mean-spirited idea that we, we, we you mentioned earlier, is that... Is it, are there sort of certain horror films that, that you sort of find difficult to watch because of that sort of mean-spirited, even if you admire the film? Yeah, um, it's more a, a, a cumulative effect than mm. an individual film effect. I mean, it, to look at the, the, yeah, the key texts of torture porn, which would be probably Hostel, the Saw films, Martyrs, individually, I think those are all interesting movies and they've got, things it's just binge watching <laughs> yeah which which i think i did in order to write my torture porn chapter in the new the last edition of nightmare movies it, 
just becomes wearisome. It's a very narrow range of what's supposed to be horrific. And actually, so I, I, I think maybe some of the ones that seem to be aiming to make you know, deeper statements are probably the ones that are more annoying, isn't it? You know? are, you, are you thinking of the Serbian? Was it the oh, Serbian movie or the, the Serbian, Serbian film? Yeah, I thought, again, I thought that was interesting, but I don't particularly want ever to see it again. Mm. It's like, I didn't, yeah, you know, I went and saw the remake of Martyrs, you know, so, and, and or indeed, I, and I saw the remake of Funny Games as well, isn't it? It's like films that you can't get anybody to watch more than once unless you remake them in another language. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, God, funny, funny uh, games is definitely a film that I found extremely effective. Yeah, and certainly, you know, the the a lot of you know the the discourse around that particular cycle of film tended to assume as if it was all yeah meretricious uh, exploitation movies, but certainly, um, you know, the the Passion of the Christ and Michael Haneke's films seem to me to fit perfectly into that little blip. Of, of particularly gruesome torture type movies, and I think probably it had something to do with the zeitgeist of the of that phase of the war on terror. Does it, it's something that will, yeah, I'm sure come back periodically. It may also be that that was a form that that burned itself out simply because people didn't really want to watch it anymore. Yeah, it it, it shows that you can only go so far with it before people just get fed up with it. And, and for instance, every month, because I do the, the Empire column of all the non-theatrical movies, every month I see films which are wholly derivative of Night of the Living Dead, uh, The Exorcist, Jaws, and Alien. All films made between 1968 and 1979. So you know, 40 to 50 years later, these films are still being imitated. They're still making shark attack movies. They're still making zombie apocalypse movies. You can toss in Halloween. They're still making mask splasher movies. Uh, uh, to me, it's kind of astonishing that maybe the only thing since Alien would be something like the Blair Witch Project, which see, which because it advanced a particular type of horror that was inexpensive to make, has uh, it's kind of artificially extended the life form of that cycle. Because if you're a starting filmmaker, found footage is still cheaper. Um, and so that'll naturally be more appealing. And it, as a style, it reinvents itself every couple of years with different films. So it, it, it is a genuine addition to that. But on the, on the one hand, it's sort of astonishing that these works have inspired such devotion. On the other hand, it's a bit sad, isn't it? That there are young filmmakers out here looking at 50-year-old movies and say, let's just make that. Not, not uh, uh, say, particularly it's the case of people who commission films rather than people who make films. People say, yeah, what do you want for your cable channel? I'll get me some shark movies, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like Alien, but on a bus. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's not. It's not in horror, but Die Hard is another touchstone movie that people are still imitating. I saw Die Hard at the cinema and remember thinking that was okay. I thought it was it was a pretty good action film, but it did not strike me as being amazingly original. And you can 
find instances of diehard type plot. All I I think that the urtext of Die Hard is Ernest Hemingway's novel To Have and Have Not, which ends with the hero who, unlike in the film, has only one arm, alone on a boat with a bunch of terrorists. And he picks them off one by one. Yeah. Uh, and it's like, oh, yeah, that's the Die Hard plot. It, it, it wasn't used for the um, Howard Hawks, Humphrey Bogart movie, although the ending of Hemingway's To Have and Have Not was then used by John Huston's The Ending for Key Largo. Uh, a film that otherwise is based on the play. But if you look at it, Key Largo is, if you want a, a text for a diehard movie, that's it. You said earlier as well that in order to watch some films, you, you have to remake them in a different language. I was thinking about this as well in terms of what you just said, in, in terms of where do we get fresh horror ideas from? Where, why do we keep going back to these avatars? Why isn't there a new... But, uh, but uh, it sort of occurs to me that where you do get really fresh ideas is from a different culture. It is from, like, The Ring coming out of Japanese horror or or even the Babadook coming out of Australian from an Australian filmmaker. Oh yeah, I mean every every so often yeah, uh, horror as a genre absorbs it yeah, and in fact there, there was a whole cycle of asian influenced horror movies although yeah, the ring, the ring is based on a a novel by a, a Japanese writer, Koji Suzuki, who sort of thought of himself as, as doing what Stephen King was doing in Japan. And actually the whole premise of The Ring is very close to the premise of The Woman in Black, with, yeah, it, although there it's pretty technological, but the haunting is kind of the same. So, yeah, this, I, and I'm fascinated by odd little Phillips like, you know, Mexican horror films with wrestlers or, or La Llorona, the, the crying woman. Uh, what's interesting sometimes is not what's fresh and different, but what's the same, what's scary around the world. Mm -hmm. Different cultures who have different attitudes to the supernatural have different types of horror. And maybe now there's more access to it. I've been uh, seeing more and more Indonesian horror films lately. You know, there's been a little wave of activity there. And I'm never sure whether it's a wave of production activity or international distribution activity. Mm. Sometimes it is, you know, the, a film from a particular territory clicks. And so therefore the buyers go and, 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 and scoop up everything that's remotely comparable. I love the way as well that, it, it, as you were saying with the Blair Witch Project, where the, sometimes it's just a technical thing, like they've just discovered a, a video cameras are, uh, are working good enough to show films. Or yeah. another one I always notice is somebody somewhere figures out how to do a certain special effect, like getting somebody. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
his face stomped in. And suddenly yeah. you have 20 films from Drive to Kill List, all featuring a brutal face smashing in. Yeah, scene. yeah. Because somebody's just gone, oh, I've figured out how to do it, guys. In the early 80s, uh, Stephen King wrote this really good book about horror called Dance Macabre. And he was sort of talking about the various types of horror. And one of the things he said was, yeah, they're, they, they've stopped making werewolf movies. There hasn't been a good one in 20 years. And of course, 20 minutes after his book came out, The Howling, an American werewolf in London, and a whole bunch of other cat people came out. And that was purely because Rick Baker and Rob Bottin had independently in, invented a new way of depicting werewolf transformations on, on screen. And so therefore, a whole bunch of films started using it. I assume the same is... is is true with monster movies after Jurassic Park. Although we misremember Jurassic Park as the film that introduced CGI monsters. It has a lot more practical effects than CGI. How did you start in this career, in this specialisation? What was your, what's your origin story? It's probably being allowed up late to watch the Bela Lugosi version of Dracula when I was 11. I mean, I, I, I because... For years, I would sort of tell the story about this and how it started. But of course, now, thanks to the, the miracle of, uh, you know, online listings and things, I can even find out the date. You know, it's like, I, yeah, it, uh, yeah, I've got it written down somewhere. I found out the actual date in autumn 1970 when I watched Dracula on Westwood television. And, that, <laughs> and, and then... After that, I I became a kid who was just interested in monsters. Yeah, and I watched the loads of horror films. They were not easy to see see then. I read all the books. And that just mushroomed a bit to being interested in film in general, maybe even literature in, in general. And I think I... And I started writing down notes about films somewhere in my sheets. I, I find a lot of people who grow up to be film critics do the same kind of uh, approach road thing. One is just to start keeping lists of what you've seen. I didn't keep a diary of it, but I just started one year for Christmas. It just was one of the minor presents. I was given like a, a, a desk calendar. I think it was like a promotional for the garage or something. And <laughs> on, on January the 1st, I uh, watched a movie on television and I just wrote it on the calendar. I thought, oh, that's a good idea. I just did that for a couple of years. I would have a calendar and I would write... <laughs> on it rather than appointments or useful stuff i just write the films i'd seen and, and the days and eventually that be that became unwieldy and i transferred it to a typed list and i'd started keeping notes on some things and and uh, yeah uh, you know writing little capsule reviews and, and that led some years later to writing for fanzines and university magazines and doing the program notes for film society screenings and that sort of stuff, which is what I did before I sold professionally as a film critic, which I did in the early 80s. There were a couple of markets then that were open to over the transom. Yeah, yeah, I, I sent some clippings in from my fanzines and I wrote some samples and the monthly film bulletin and City Limits, which was a London listings magazine that was a, a kind of rival to Time Out for a while, both hired me or didn't hire me. They used me for freelance work. I've never actually had a job. I'm still a freelance. And it was, I know, that it's a very difficult business to break into now. I don't think it was that easy then, except there were opportunities. There were plenty of places that didn't pay very much, 
but would pay a little. And we're looking for you know, new voices or uh, younger voices or just people to fill the pages. And also, I concentrated on the sadly extinct form of magazines that felt obliged to review everything. Because therefore, I, I re- there are a whole bunch of things that nobody really wants to see. I'll just go and see those and review them. And actually, horror films were, were sort of part of that, although... It, it was not a, a completely despised form. There were lower things. It was. A, I remember getting, having to go and see things like the sequels to Porky's, you know, and all that. <laughs> um, yeah, the, the utter the dreck. Was, and, I, and I saw, like, the My Little Pony movie and all that sort of thing. Oh, talk about mean-spirited. <laughs> yeah, and I was willing to go and write actual reviews of those films. And that seems to be, that was your rite of passage then. So that's, yeah, that, that's how I started out were you always writing like creatively as well at the same time yes i was i never really separated the two i think i just through sheer coincidence i think i sold my first short story uh, or no i wrote my the first short story of mine that sold in the same month that i first placed uh, some criticism professionally. So so from very early on, and actually I'm quite pleased, well, I, I'm, yeah, I think that that was a good thing now because looking back on it, if one had taken off and the other hadn't, I might have dropped the one that wasn't selling. Yeah, right, I might right. not have. If, and, and, it, and I sold a, a science fiction story to a magazine called Interzone. Uh, which was a, a 1980s startup. And again, we're looking for newish writers. And there was a little group of us who were all sort of interested in having our own little wave of, of what was going on in science fiction and horror at the, at the time. And because I sold to them, I felt that, yeah, it was worth sticking with the fiction because fiction was harder to get established in than non-fiction. Having a sense that both avenues were worth pursuing and I've done that throughout yeah I think there have been years where I've concentrated on one to the expense of the other but I've never entirely abandoned uh, either yeah I I don't know I always I've I've uh, published a novel in the past and I've I've definitely I'm still pursuing the creative writing strand and I it, it it feels to me I don't know if you have the same feeling but I've had chapters in books and I'm writing another a film book at the moment and it doesn't feel like a book the way a novel feels like a book to me. Yeah, I, I, I've written, you know, fairly substantial books about film as well mm. as novels. But yeah, I, I mean, I think I suppose the thing is novels are all entirely out of my head, even though most of my novels stand in relationship to real life or indeed to film. Yeah, or or media, or so I, mean, I, I quite often find nuggets of, of story in that. But yeah, no, I, it certainly involves more of me personally. I think. And your marvelous Anno Dracula books as well. You've got. I've got. I've got to ask you about those. I mean, where where did that come from? That that. Uh, oh, that well, inspiration. Yeah, that, inspiration came from it was a university course, mm. <laughs> which. which proves that there was a reason to get to, to take an English degree. I did a course on late, it was called Late Victorian Revolt. It was about Victorian popular culture and various upheavals. And it was taught by Norman Mackenzie, who was H.G. Wells' biographer and the poet 
Lawrence Lerner. It was a really good course. It made me read a lot of interesting 19th century books I hadn't read before. And I wrote a, a thesis on this guy, and it was about it, it, it was about apocalyptic fictions, uh, you know, War of the Worlds, stuff like that. And I there was a chapter in that about invasion narratives. Indeed, War of the Worlds is one, or the Battle of Dorking, you know, all these yeah, stories about the German and the French army taking over London, uh, which there were a lot of in the late 19th century. And as a footnote, I, I sort of said, and Bram Stoker's Dracula can be considered as an invasion narrative. And then it occurred to me that, yeah, the, the first third of Dracula is like the first third of War of the Worlds. And then Dracula gets distracted from whatever his huge scheme is by you know, a sort of soap opera plot. It's, it's like he's uh, chasing the wife of a provincial solicitor uh, rather than taking over the country. Uh, and it just stuck in the back of my mind. It'd be interesting to do a story in which he did take over the country. And lo and behold, and again, like, like quite a lot of my ideas, that was on my docket for some years before I wrote it. Um, and not quite as long as something more than night, but it was a good 10 years between that footnote and the first version of, uh, yeah, uh, um, I did a novella version of Mano Dracula before I did it as a novel. So that was 10 years of it percolating is the word you used, and that's the word I used as well. Yeah, uh, maybe it's more like a compost heap. Very <laughs> deep and pour stuff on it and, 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 and hope that eventually, you know, something will grow out of it. But, uh, <laughs> Steam rises from the... Yeah, that's right. And I've got various other ideas like that that I've not got around to yet, you know. But yeah, that once I'd done the... I think it was... It's the maybe the only instance where I've... I've started a novel realising that it was going to be a series rather mm. than a novel. Although, of course, when I was writing the first one, I, 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 there was a period where I thought, only I am going to be interested in this. So I thought, maybe it's not a series, maybe it's a book. <laughs> yeah. But then it came out and people liked it. And, and, I, and I had ideas for the next two, I think, I, I knew going in and then since then every couple of years another idea has come along and is needed to be done as an Anno Dracula book it's not a, a planned out series like the George Martin or J.R. Tolkien it's not a story that's got an end or a climax yeah it, but it's a world I can visit uh, and tell stories within I, I was wondering if you if you thought of combining the two how do you mean uh, uh, something more than night and uh, oh, Dracula. Uh, yeah, because you do have. I mean, was it Dr um, Dracula Cha Cha Cha? Uh, sort of goes into the world of. Yeah, true. And I don't. Uh, in Johnny Alucard, one of the Dan Dracula books, there's a section that's narrated by Philip Marlowe. Mm. So I have done a Chandler stretch in that. Bell Lugosi appears in one of the novels as well, for obvious reasons. I'm sure Boris Cobb is at least mentioned in the in the books. It'd be strange if he wasn't. Probably in in Johnny Alucard, which has a lot of movie stuff in it. Yeah, no, it's it's not quite a fit, but all my books connect together at some juncture. Even something more than that is a standalone, but a couple of characters have been in some of my earlier books. It's uh, back to that sort of universe building, isn't it? Mm, of, uh, yeah, everything connecting together. Yeah. I it's hard not to do, yeah. <laughs> but in my case, it is a multiverse rather than a universe. Yeah. <laughs>
that gives you more freedom because uh, in the end, the universe, the sort of creative idea of the universe becomes a bit confining. I mean, it's, it's like Star Wars. It's, it's like three, three planets. I thought there was a galaxy out there. It's, yeah, <laughs> it's one of those things where when, when your ongoing continuity prevents you from telling certain types of stories or from doing certain things, then that's when you need to change it up. Mm-hmm. It's when you realise you've trapped yourself, which I think we all do to some extent. But there is a point where you think, no, I want the freedom to go off and take this in a slightly different direction. I suspect that's not entirely a recipe for commercial success, but it's, it's a recipe for me not going crazy, and I'm all in favour of that. Yeah, absolutely. You got you also you've got to sort of take those those ideas and, and go somewhere. I mean, that's that's slightly the problem with what we were talking about earlier about the comic book movies is the trajectory of the he- of a sort of Joseph Campbell hero's journey, which they all seem to be you know have as a template. It's just a kind of dull story after you've seen it for the 20th time, you know? Yeah, as a long-time comic book reader, I actually quite appreciate the the way, particularly now that Marvel are are using some of their TV shows to do different things. Mm. I always thought the strength of Marvel as a comics sort of universe is they could do The Punisher and they could do Howard the Duck, and they could have Howard the Duck meet The Punisher. That, That gave you a range of possibilities from you know, grim, intense, depressing, you know, on the streets, criminal vigilante to just goofy. And without feeling the need to say that this wasn't the same world, because the real world, yeah, ranges from awful to silly in, in kind of interesting way. I'm not sure if in, in say, the Anna Dracula universe, I'd go as far as Howard the Duck. Maybe the Spark, maybe the Sparks brothers, though. Maybe, yeah, they are, they are. But I think that what I was trying to do with them was, was comedians who are scary, which is sort of an interesting... I might go as far as Squirrel Girl, who's a, <laughs> a particular favourite of mine. When you... Uh, you, you sort of specialised in, in horror, although, you know, your interests are, are much broader than that. Well, I wrote a book about Westerns purely to prove that I knew about other things. Speaking about the Sparks Brothers, there was a Western actor in Italy called Clint Westwood. (laughs) Yeah, I know. There's 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 an Italian horror film which has a big monster played by somebody called Boris Lugosi. (laughs) Although, when you see it, it's a very recognisable face of somebody who's in a lot of Italian movies under another name or several other names. That's the, that's the joy. I mean, I watch a lot of it. I'm based in Italy, so I watch a lot of Italian movies. And uh, one of the joys is that, you know, all the actors from the Spaghetti Westerns turn up in really serious, great movies as well. I mean, a lot of the Spaghetti Westerns were great, but it's just so interesting to see such range and, and these guys. I mean, uh, Pasolini is in, a, in a, is in a Spaghetti Western, just shows that's that. That's right, yeah. Yeah, recreation act. Yeah. So, what I was going to ask about the the horror genre specifically is, as a as what you've called it, a, a sort of genre of effect. Do you do you ever get that effect out of all that familiarity? Is there a moment where you go, "Oh Christ, this is too scary for me," or something like that? I I can still be profoundly <clears throat> scared or affected. It's harder to surprise me. Mm. That's the thing is is. Once you've watched a lot of horror films, there used to be this worry that you get desensitized. I think, if anything, I'm more sensitive. But it's really hard to trick me because I, yeah, it's like I know all the punchlines, and I always really appreciate it. 
when a when a film does do something that I didn't expect or haven't seen coming. Although sometimes that's not satisfying either because it's a complete break with your engagement with the stories. If they pull a twist out of left field that makes no sense whatsoever. Whereas what what you want from a twist is, oh, I should have seen that. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And you didn't. Uh, yeah, is it? Oh, that was that. Yeah, it's so obvious, of course. But yeah, yeah, nah. And, and in terms of sort of the the more recent developments with horror, it, we're kind of in terms of acceptance of horror. It's no longer the um, the sort of transgressive, looked down upon genre. All kind of sort of genres like to feel they're despised and, and spat on. Don't they? It's like everybody can be. Yeah, there, there are there are lower forms than horror i mean in the you know, romance people give a hard time to people who write that stuff yeah yeah no i i think that yeah there are still a few people who just I, yeah who have influential voices who just don't like the idea of horror who don't understand it who don't get it and it is that whereas nobody says they don't like the idea of comedy i don't know, do people who specialize in in um writing about comedy lose the ability to laugh. I mean, I, I would argue that sort of modern comedy is incredibly difficult to do, or, or it's incredibly difficult to find any acceptance. You know, it needs a few years before people go, actually, that comedy Will Ferrell did, you know, five years ago. Was, yeah. we, we should actually take it seriously as a film, because at the moment it's just like, it's easy to dismiss, I guess. I try, I'm trying to bait you on Will Ferrell, <laughs> get your Will Ferrell point of view. Um, I think he's quite talented, but I, the last couple of things I saw him in weren't good. But I, I saw that Sherlock Holmes movie he did, which just didn't—it didn't—it didn't work as a parody, and it didn't work as a sort of straight-ahead film either. And it sort of makes you realise that there are ways of, of telling this story in a fun manner, but just casting Sherlock Holmes as a comedy idiot doesn't work. Gene Wilder and Marty Feldman did a... Yeah, that, did... that worked better. And I think maybe actually Billy Wilder's Sherlock Holmes film is sort of comic, but also very melancholy. Uh, the, the one that, for me, doesn't work and, and ought because of the casting, and yet is a brilliant idea, is without a clue. The whole idea is that Sherlock Holmes is an actor who's required to be Sherlock Holmes. But the trouble is they cast Michael Caine, who couldn't play Sherlock Holmes. That film would be much funnier if it starred Peter O'Toole, or somebody tall and thin and intense, who you might believe as Sherlock Holmes, who then you slowly realise is a complete idiot. But casting Caine is a sort of, you know, a lumpy presence in that. I, I didn't mind that Will Ferrell film that much but that was only because i saw it after everybody said it was absolute waste of time and terrible so yeah. i sort of watched it and thought well it's not that bad but it is that particular breed of, of modern star comedies that don't have a single laugh in. you might smile occasionally yeah they're not too long they're not boring but they're not funny you know yeah yeah it's that sort of let's put john c Riley and will ferrell together and we've got the package so we don't really need a script yeah that's right or jokes <laughs> and actually i mean yeah i think it's pos- perfectly possible to make a very funny comedy film without jokes but that kind of parody does require jokes will ferrell's style or adam sandler's style are very close to bob hope you know, uh, a man who surrounded himself with joke writers, or the yeah you know, the Saturday Night Live crew of the original yeah you know, the Dan Aykroyd John Belushi 
that. They required material. They were funny people, but they needed jokes. And it seems to me that the uh, <laughs> we're obviously running thin of the kind of comedy writers who can do that sort of shtick. Not that we haven't got some you know, genuinely brilliant people working in the, the field. Yeah, I guess it's, I guess the similar thing with, well, I mean, it seems to be with every genre at the moment. You know, if you want to watch horror, there, there's a heck of a lot of horror television uh, available on Netflix and on, on, you know, on other streaming services and superhero movies, they've got a whole channel and, uh, and as far as comedy is concerned, you don't really go to the movies for the for the comedy. You go to yeah. you know you go to your twenty five minute animated series or or sitcoms or yeah. Although comedy still, I mean, actually, maybe because the the ecology of the cinema has been so changed over the last two years, it's hard to tell. But it used to be a reliable thing. Every year there would be a couple of mid range, mid budget comedy, you know, Melissa McCarthy movies uh, or whatever. And one in four of those would be really good, would be genuinely funny, have, have good ideas in it, would, would connect emotionally and everybody would love it. And then there'd be three other ones, which were just terrible, right? Yeah. <laughs> and often made by or starring the same people. I don't think there's anyone in, in the modern era who is as consistent in terms of comedy star vehicles as Bob Hope was or Woody Allen until he decided to turn serious. Yeah. Someone who was funny every time out. Yeah. Jim, uh, Jim Carrey had a good run. He, he did he like four or five. Run, but, but then crashed. Yes. Yeah. Um, same with Mike Myers. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and, and, um, but also, you yeah, know, for instance, I think that were he interested, Steve Coogan could be that kind of comedian. But he's also sort of interested in being a good actor as well. So, mm. yeah. He, and, and actually, it's interesting, Will Ferrell and Adam Sandler both have really strong acting credits that don't seem to affect their ongoing careers in declining comedy vehicles. I remember seeing The Wedding Singer at the cinema and not ha not knowing anything about Adam Sandler because obviously we didn't get SNL as much as we do now. And just thinking, wow, this is brilliant. He's charming. It's funny. It's kind of kind-hearted. And then it all went a little bit pear-shaped. <laughs> One last question. Well, a couple of couple of final questions for you. The first one is, uh, what what you're working? What's your next project? What you're working on next in terms of your book? If if you can talk about it. Mm, good point. Because I'm I, 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 actually I can't reveal. I'm, I'm I'm I'm. God damn it! Why did I say if you can talk about it? I've signed on to two things that I can't talk about yet. But I am working on something. I'm not just sitting here, you know. But yeah, that, that yeah. Watch this space for later in the year. But, uh, but yeah, no, I. <laughs> a good rule of thumb in, in this business anybody who wants you to sign a non disclosure agreement is an asshole. But anybody who asks you just not to say anything about this yet, fine. I, I will, <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. And the final question then, and this one you, I'm sure you haven't signed an NDA on. What yeah. uh, film book would you recommend for our listeners? This is Carlos Clarence. Horror movies, this is called. It's also published as an illustrated history of the horror film. Um, this was like the first serious film book I read. I mean, it's, I think it was first published in, I'm look, looking up, yeah, 1967. And it's like the first attempt 
to look at horror films not just as a bunch of movies, but to see a coherent story that mm. starts with Georges Méliès and goes through German silence and universal horror, Val Luton, 1950s Hammer, all that, all that kind of stuff. And that, what really influenced me, apart from the fact it was about films I loved and it was full of, there's a list at the back, and, a, and this isn't my original copy because my original copy fell apart. <laughs> but the, the, the list at the back I went through and I ticked off the ones I'd seen, you know, and all this stuff. So, and, um, and, and looked at, longingly at the ones that I thought were never going to play on television anywhere near me and I'd never get to see. But it's the, the fact that it managed to make a story out of it. And that, more than anything else, when I was writing nightmare movies, was that I was looking at, and in fact, my approach to genre is slightly different from Carlos Clarence. I, I see uh, overlapping sub-generic sub cycles seem to be is the, the, the main thrust of film history. But seeing that a way of, and it's just a way of getting your head around something that is otherwise a long list of many thousands of films that mm. quite often are hard to distinguish from each other. Find the story. And and the other thing, and, and Carl Clarence, who also wrote a really good book about gangster movies, um, he paid attention to the quality of the prose. And I think that that's a, a thing that uh, when everybody asks me about, yeah, what what do I do to get into the business? Or, yeah, what should I, I... I assume if you want to be a film critic, you already love movies and you've seen a lot of them and, and all that and stuff. So I can't help you with that. But one thing you can work on is just the quality of the writing. Mm -hmm. Write sentences that sing uh, without being too fussy. And obviously uh, be the besetting sin of my profession and, and my generation is being too clever by half. So work really hard to cut that out. Yes, absolutely. That's brilliant advice. I, the, 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 yeah, yeah. I, 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 I totally agree with, with that advice. Superb. Oh, I, I, when you mentioned lists, just one last thing, uh, I promise you. No, no, no. What was a film that was like on that list that you didn't see for ages and ages? And it was like, a, you know, a really, a, I got, I'll never see this film. And then you saw it. Have you got a, an example of that for us? Um, I, well, the thing is with the horror classics, apart from like the ones that are lost, London After Midnight and the Murnau version of Jekyll and Hyde, I think I had probably seen everything significant well in you know, by the mid-1980s. Uh, because that was the point when suddenly things that had seemed unlikely ever to be available, yeah, I mean, uh, stuff that had been banned as, as well, but also stuff, there was a, you know, the, the idea that the blood feast or something was just never going to have any form of release in Britain because there was, it couldn't be shown on television. It didn't come around the, the cinemas. There wasn't that much interest in it, frankly. By the 80s, those things were starting to show at, at rep cinemas that I was going to. Every, so, in a, a, I'm not sure what the, the last sort of really big yeah major classic horror tick was for me as, as it were but it would have been sometime in in the 80s i would have caught up with the the, the last and, and and there are still i know what it was it was it was the original japanese version of godzilla ah right difficult to see for a long time we saw the, the raymond burr version although weirdly i think in the end i saw the japanese version dubbed into german first before seeing the Raymond version 
And so that was the one that, that became went from being utterly obscure and difficult to see to now being readily accessible. But in terms of things that I just haven't seen because I've not got round to it, I have in the last couple of years been doing something something as sort of an annual tradition, which is on New Year's Day, I will try and watch an absolute stone classic that everybody says is great, that somehow I have failed to watch beforehand. And so over the last couple of years, and it's like it's only a year or so back I watched Carl Dreyer's Trial of Joan of Arc, for instance. Right. Which is and actually, Ken Loach's Kess, I only saw that two years ago. Again, something that, yeah, you get the point once once you miss something from the, you know, the canon, it takes a long time to, to motivate yourself to catch up. And this year, and in fact, it was not one film. It's, it, I realized I had seen two of the Three Colors trilogy, but not, I think, Three Colors Blue I'd missed. So I watched all three over the New Year period. So I have caught up with that. Only, yeah, only 20 years too late. <laughs> You're just turning up to everybody, every conversation going, I've just seen this new film, it's amazing. Yeah, I know, and, 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 and I'd like to sort of big up that as a, a thing to do because I occasionally get the sense that, that I have an image of being somebody who's seen everything and is changing about it. It's not true. There are plenty of things I've not seen that, that I am capable of being. So, and the thing is, it used to, there is so much good stuff out there that is easily accessible. In my case, I have like piles the size of a 1950s fridge of unwatched DVDs and Blu-rays. Yeah. And I know in there, there's an enormous amount of really outstanding, terrific material that I've just not got around to. I will eventually. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Kim. We're happy to do it. you enjoyed that it was a great conversation it was great talking to kim he's a writer who i've read and admired over the years in sight and sound in empire and lots of different places as well as his books obviously and his uh, and his novels uh, are really worth worth reading if you uh, haven't already had the pleasure they're an absolute treat it always reminds me it reminds me a little bit as well of, of a sort of 2000 ad imagination for some reason i just you know growing up in the, the 1980s and starting to read comic books and and there was a moment in my life when I shifted from warlord and battle and all those quite grotesque, violent fantasies and landed with, I remember, I think it was Eagle was one of the first comics I was buying and then 2000 AD and then somebody gave me all their back copies, all their old copies of 2000 AD and I read them and read them and read them and Strontium Dog and all that, all that sort of stuff. Anyway, I, I, I just think, uh, yeah, I just think Kim's got that kind of imagination that sort of, it, it incorporates all that kind of love of the gothic, love of the of what Jonathan Rigby was talking about last week, of the sort of furniture of horror as well, the sort of candelabras. He's got encyclopedic knowledge, uh, which is handy, because he kind of writes the encyclopedia on horror as well. So uh, that, that was a fantastic conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. Now, uh, we're going to have a um, a little bit of a change next week, because I recognize that we have done uh, a couple of horror 
podcasts and writers uh, in a uh, in a row. So uh, the the next um, podcast is going to be uh, a little bit of a change in subject. I'm going to be looking at the Mankiewicz brothers. So if you are uh, interested in Mank, as he was called, or his brother Joseph Mankiewicz, then uh, you should uh, definitely download the episode next week. Thanks to Elliot Atkins, thank you to, uh, for the music, thank you to Ali Harwood for the art, and thank you listener, I couldn't do it without you or I mean I could do it without you but it would be a lonely, lonely sad thing so, uh, so thanks very much for listening and until next week please take care Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.